Thank you. You're listening to the Red Room Sessions Radio Show. Kia ora, hello, haramai and welcome to the Red Room Sessions radio show and this, the second part of the Greg Haver interview. You're listening to the Red Room Sessions radio show. Greg, can I take you back on your sort of personal story? Because you're, 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 you're in Wales, you're playing all of the, the clubs. Yeah. Um, you've, you've done your, your hard yards. What was the first time that you, you thought to yourself, this might actually work as a career? Was there a landmark moment? Yeah, it would have been... I'd started doing a few sessions in air studios in London that mainly came through a, a, a good friend of mine, Matt Butler, who, to go back a bit further, late 80, late 70s, sorry, the first ever recording session I did was like a folk session for this young artist, Matt, Matt Butler, and um, on a little late track in the studio in Herefordshire. And... Um, about a year later, I was moving to. I was going to live in Canada. I met. I met a keyboard player in Canada, in Toronto, and I, I was going over to play for his band. I'm like, why not? You know, mm. it's like, uh, you know, and Rush were from there, so how bad can it be? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and the stu- and the and the and the producer and studio owner. It's what you know. What am I going to do about mixing? Because mixing in those days was all hands on deck. Mm. You needed about three or four people just to move faders around. You know, <laughs> and uh, I said, that young kid, Matt Butler. He seems really in, in, interested in the recording process. Why didn't you get him in? So, like, Matt's first gig was doing this. Within a year, he was he was running um, Chapel Lane Studios in Hereford. I think two years later, he was he was head engineer at Air Studios in London. Wow. Then he became Paul McCartney's engineer, and he, he was he was working with McCartney at Hastings for years. And in that, in the meantime, when he was a, he was working with Mick Jagger and Dire Straits, and you know, he's like like every major eighties artist was going for the thing. So. So I got Matt's first gig. element of you asshole was that <laughs> oh you're just you know but when the reason one of the things i realized that matt he is the world's nicest person yeah. and the reason he got on so well is because he was really affable and he just makes every artist feel totally comfortable when they walk into the studio mm. and um it's like you could learn a lot from that you know I, I would never be as nice as matt but you try <laughs> i try and channel some of his niceness when i'm working <laughs> but um so, you know, Matt would phone up every now and again, I need a drummer for the session, do you want to come down? So I'd go, I'd go and stay at my Auntie Rose's house in London, wheel my drums down, Ox- when Air was in Oxford Street. The only way was down Oxford Street to get your gear in. So you'd have to get the trolley and wheel it down Oxford Street, which is n- no mean feat. So like, rather than do it in the day, I would do it the night before and stay at my auntie's who lived in Albany, Albany Street just up the road. And um, so I'd go down there and do all these sessions for various producers for, you know... Bizarre, again, bizarre for a lot of Dutch artists. I don't, mm. I don't know what the whole Dutch thing with me is, but anyway. And um, so I've been working on some sessions at Air, and uh, but I was also like this time I was doing the classic musician thing. I was doing some sessions, but I was also working as a labourer for my for my dad's company, which involved like at the time he was putting in the ring mains for the National Coal Board, connecting all the all the Welsh mines together with. Yeah, just before they all closed down, mm. and um, so this one winter we were on top of the mountain above Pont de Prive, and I get a vertigo, so I can't go doing the pole work. So my job would be in the bottom of the hole picking the stones out. So you'd be in a thunderstorm at the bottom of like a twenty foot <laughs> hole picking stones out of the because you can't put poles in because they won't stand up with the stones in there. And I remember getting home from work one night, you know, just just drenched, kind of like covered in mud and. Like, Phone rings. It's it's Matt. Greg, Matt, it's Matt. Um, do you want to come to Montserrat next week and do a record? Because he'd like all the air studio engineers would get a stint in Air Montserrat as a kind of reward for like, you know, 
working for Air Studios. How many seconds did it take you to make that decision? Yeah, I, I, I can't even remember. It came out of my mouth so quickly that I was like, yeah, it was a millisecond. And, uh, and I said, that would be amazing. <laughs> and he said, great. So, um, uh, it's for a Canadian artist called Corey Hart who was actually really big at the time. He had a ma- this massive sunglasses at night hit and he's like a couple of top tens in America and all this stuff. And uh, he said, Corey's manager will give you a bell. Uh, we've had, they fired, basically they had fired their drummer on this album and he needed someone to come and finish the album off. And, uh, and, um, and what had happened, unbeknownst to me at the time, was Corey had asked Matt who would be good to come and finish the album and Matt said, you should get my friend Greg Hayward to come over. And then he went to speak to to Matt Howe, who was the assistant engineer, who I just done a session with in London independently, and and he said, "Do you know any? You know, do you anybody?" And Matt, said, it was this guy who was just in London, and it, you know, it was like so he had two recommendations Brilliant. from the set. You know, it was just really fortuitous. You mm. know, I just worked with Matt Howe, and um, so um, so like a, about three weeks later. I'm sort of like, I've got my Yamaha kit. I'm on a Cessna light aircraft flying from Antigua to Montserrat. <laughs> you know, and, the, and it was like, you, you arrive there and you're like, you know, you're staying in, in George Martin's colonial mansion, you wow. know. And you're, and you're at Air, which is like, you know, at the iconic 80s studio with yeah. like, you know, like a couple of police, the iconic police records have been made and, you know, Brothers in Arms with Dire Straits and like, you know, um, Ebony and Ivory um, was recorded there, Paul McCartney, yeah. Stevie Wonder, you know, just the uh, the ultimate 80s studio. Maiden recorded there as well, is that I the think, one? Well? I think everybody's yeah. recorded, you know, it was, it was the ultimate 80s studio. Yeah. And understandably, because it was beautiful, you mm. know, it was like swimming pool. There was a barman called Dez. Who would bring you like you know you'd you'd literally pick up the phone by the pool and you know banana daiquiri please Des and Des would come down and serve you banana daiquiris wow. in the pool, you know and it was like you know back when there was a shitload of money around <laughs> obviously, so I I, I flew in uh, you know I sort of got in and then and and really it was just me and Corey there like there was no band members there. Turns out that, that the first day was my audition essentially and if I hadn't worked out I was on the next plane home I didn't know this at the time, no. so um yeah so I got um. Luckily, it all worked out fine, and then you know, then I did this record with Corey, and then he, he we, we we all worked out well, and he asked if I'd go on tour with him, so I toured, I toured Canada and Japan and the Far East with him that year. He must be pinching. Oh, it was amazing. Band called Waterfront, who I'd, I'd been doing sessions for a couple of the guys for, for quite a few years in Cardiff, and they, and they secured this really big deal with SBK Records, and and so they asked if I'd work, work on their records. So I did in between Corey's album and tour, I did their album, mm. and then that album spawned like a top ten hit in the states. So I came straight from Corey's tour to the Waterfront, AMD, the Waterfront tour. So I spent a couple of years just touring and, you know, on backs of some couple of really successful records. Mm. So that was kind of like the watershed. It's 88, 89 was just like I didn't really go home much. I just kind of like spent all my life on the road or away recording. And so really that was the jump from. So I literally went with, with you Corey. You were literally a hole in the ground to Montserrat. Ex- yeah, essentially. <laughs> and also playing. I went from playing at like, the Poets Corner in Cardiff, which is a little pub I used to play all the time, to playing like arenas with Corey. You know, <laughs> I remember the first night, just like I won some enormous drum rise, and we're playing some ice hockey arena in Canada, and it's like there's the light. The whole gig would start with like me playing drums, and Corey would come on stage, and we do this drum and vocal intro thing. And I was like, I remember just like my heart rate kind of going. Yeah. I was like, holy shit! You know, it was like it was just like you know all the things you dreamt about as a young musician. Or you, you know, just condensed into this one kind of like moment of like, oh my god, this is it! You know, screaming girls and light shows and drum risers, and it was um yeah, it was pretty pretty epic time, you know. And it really you know that that was like, I was at twenty seven at the time, so it's kind of, 
it was a massive leap up just in standard. I remember with with Corey's band, remember they were such good musicians. I remember thinking, I'm gonna have to be on the top of my game every single night. So you're constantly trying to play 100% of your ability at every moment of every every rehearsal, every gig, just to stay on their level. Did you feel yourself getting better from that process? Oh, I mean, it was it was it was it was just you know a massive leap up at the end of that tour in ability. You just like mm. you just you become so confident with you know the way bands improve. It's right. You can be in a rehearsal room forever, but if you go into a studio or you go on tour, they're the two ways that artists really really improve because mm. you focus in on 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 what you're doing. Mm. And I just remember coming back from that tour, just feeling so utterly confident because you just you incrementally improved over the period that period of time. Mm. So you know, so it wasn't just the fact that it was a leap up career wise. It was just a massive leap up ability wise, mm. just to stay uh, keep up with those guys, you know, because yeah. they were amazing, you know. So, so after that, you um, you, you could come back home. What what was the what was the move then from being a session drummer to turning up being an engineer or a producer? So it all got a bit dark after then. Did it? <laughs> yeah. Was there a come down period? Well, I think. When you when you start doing those tours and you start you start coming home, and like you find that you you leave the towels on the floor of the house and they're still there when you, <laughs> you know that no one's cleaned them away and like you know it's like, and it's like all right yeah this life you have to cook for yourself there's life stuff again, and you know and and also you know I I I, I was married to my first wife then and you know, I've been away for a long time and it's like yeah you know, it's it's quite a strain coming home. You know, and being a, you know, it's, it's quite sort of jarring for 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 both of you to be living together again, and so I've been apart for so long. So that was quite tricky, and it was kind of like. But, I also in that period signed a publishing deal with the MI Music Publishing. Because essentially, after the after the Corey tour, I did after Corey tour, I did the Waterfront tour, and we did like three months in America, just forty five thousand miles around America on a tour bus and everything. And then we came back, and I persuaded the band to buy a 16-track Tascam MSR 16, so we could do demos for album number two. Because I thought well, I'm gonna have to get some work after this all's finished. Mm. So why not? You know. So and then you just pay me to do the demos for the album. So I was doing that, but in, in the downtime, I was doing. Like, I started. I want to do some dance music. So I started like you know, got my TR909 out and my um, uh, TB303 and stuff, and I started knocking together some dance tracks. And I put a little sort of a group together with like um, a couple of rappers and singer and and uh, so stuff. Uh, the Vibe Tribe, and um, and we got a deal with FFRR with Pete Tong. Pete Tong signed wow. us to FFRR, and um, we had a couple of singles out, and um, you know didn't reach cha- you know channels of the charts or anything. But it was a really interesting period because you know I thought, you know, I'll try some dance music. How hard can it be? Hey y'all, you're listening to the Red Room Sessions. songwriting with Chris who was a singer for this band Waterfront that um, that I was paying for and um, and then the band kind of him and his uh, you know the other guy in the band it kind of split they had a big bust up and mm. so I ended up writing some songs with Chris for his solo album and um, and he was signed to EMI Publishing so I phoned up Sally Perriman at EMI and said you know I've got no publishing on these songs do you want to sign my publishing he goes yeah no you know we'll sign your publishing and, I, and they gave me quite a big publishing advance and they did um, and they bought me all the gear from the studio so they basically right. bought the other guy out of his, his gear. So I've still, I've, I've still, I'm still using the microphone now. I was using it on this session this week. Um, so it's like this Neumann U87. So I still got that's the only thing I've still got left from that from those days. And um, so we one of the few bits of kit that goes up in value. It does, yeah, day. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I started doing, you know, I got published deal with the MI, and I started doing some songwriting for them. I was never a great songwriter, but I learned a lot from working with other songwriters about song structure and all the things that helped me later production-wise. And I realized pretty early on that what was actually the most interesting part was making the demos as opposed to writing the songs. Mm. I'm like, yeah, I'm probably in the wrong age. I should be in production rather than... Mm. Even though I dabbled in production before, like mm. right from mid-80s, 
I never thought of it as you know. I, I thought it'd be nice to get into, but it's such a hard area. Who's how am I going to get into that? You know, mm. I thought no, maybe I should try and pursue this. Mm. So you know, so although I was still writing for EMI, it was very much I was trying to pursue kind of the production side. But the but the week I signed to EMI, um, they sent me over some lyrics, um, th- three or four sets of lyrics for um, for the new Simpsons album. And uh, and I'm like, they said, you know, um, Fox are looking for some um, right, non-American writers to write some songs for this album. So as in the Simpsons. as in the Simpsons TV show. Yeah. So I was like, well, that'd be interesting. So there's not hoping how to get in it, but we are, they're, they're paying me to, you know, so I've got an advance. I can go and do some songwriting. I'll pick this this one song here this, that Matt Groening had written the lyrics for. There's a better chance that the song they think he's written the lyrics for will get on the record. So I picked this, these lyrics for the, uh, the Ten Commandments of Bart, Bart Simpson. I thought, I'll, I'll write, I'll just do this demo. And I had this old Vibe Tribe keyboard riff in my MC500 sequencer <laughs> that I could never find a use for. But I really loved it. It was like a sort of, like an organ kind of riff thing, like a sort of house organ, you know, sort of like Steve Silk Hurley kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like... Maybe that piece, you know, but I found the old floppy disk that it was on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's like a history lesson, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, and, but yeah, I said, like, oh, this could work. So, so I started constructing this kind of like, thought, you know, if I'm going to do it, and, and what EMI said, look, just do a verse and a chorus if they like it, you know. Mm. I thought, no, nah, I'm going to do the whole thing. I'm going to spend a week. Because it was, you know, it was 12 verses. It was the Ten Commandments and an intro verse. And that. <laughs> I'm going to do the whole thing. So I spent this whole week on this one song just creating this kind of like sort of every verse had a different vibe about it that, that related to the lyric. Mm. And um, I did the classic non-Simpsons thing because the, 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 the Simpsons philosophy is always score the emotion not the action mm. thought no nah, I'm going to just I'm just going to like go for the action if there's a dog barking there's going to be a dog barking on it you know if there's a door slamming there's going to be a door slamming <laughs> so I just this whole th- epic thing and I, then I got oops, then I got my friend DK who was the rapper for the Vibe Tribe to come in I ha- harmonised his voice up and got him to do like a Bart Simpson rap thing <laughs> and um yeah, so we did this song, and uh, and uh, my ex-wife wrote the, the the chorus melody for it, and so I just sent it off to EMI and thought nothing of it, and like, but a month, two months later, this this fax arrived. This is how long it was. A fax arrived, pre-email. It was it was it was a fax from EMI to Fox saying any thoughts on these Simpsons songs, mm. and and there was a note from the head of Fox uh, Music saying. Um, point with an arrow pointing to my track, saying, "We like this one. Send him over." Wow! <laughs> so it was like, "Oh, this is pretty good." So, so you know, we got in some negotiations. And like, yeah, we want it, we want a track on the album. So I sort of, um, it was like, "Oh, this is kind of this is kind of, <laughs> a bit of a game changer, really." So uh, yeah, so so essentially, I, I recorded all the we recorded all the back track. Although I used a lot of the Tascam demos, transferred it all over to to twenty four track. Went Keep to feel. went to Moles' studio in Bath. Started you know just you know I had Simply Code and everything was locked in, so I could sort of lock up everything. Did all the all the music in 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 Moles studio in Bath, and then flew over to LA with the tapes. Oh, actually, we had to courier the tapes over, you know, work permit reasons, whatever. Get down in the den, getting funky in the rumpus room, be kind of hip. 
You bring the chips, I'll bring the bean dip. By this I mean chicken gluteus maximus. Make everybody happy, give them satisfaction. Now comes the time for commandment number nine. Goes something like this, thou shalt always make rhymes. Cause rhyming is a way, man, to make your own news. Better in CNN, better in family values. Don't get me misconstrued, I'm not trying to be crude. But a bad attitude will put you in a good mood. It ain't true that our culture's in a decline. Just listen to the superfine spine shaking baseline. But I remember there was a point in there where like Maggie Maggie does this like like hip hop thing with the pacifier, <laughs> and I'm like I said well I'm gonna need a pacifier sound and because uh, I've just used like sort of like fake one for the thing, so this I remember this FedEx package arrived like FedEx priority and like inside it was this dat. It said pacifier on it, and it was Max. I think it's Matt Groening doing some sound with his mouth or something. And it was like you know there was like all the secrecy around this like this thing, and it's like I think I think I still got the dat somewhere. It's like so and so I you know put it in, put it in my Casio sampler and did all the thing, and it was um yeah the whole th- the whole process was really bizarre. And I, I remember I remember putting the budget in and um, Fox phoning up and saying, "Is this all you need?" And we'd upgrade, upgraded everything, like first-class air travel, sports cars to drive around in nice hotels. Wow. But then you find out that, like, you know, sort of like in the studio down the road, Prince is in there doing a song. And then, you know, it's like everybody who's anybody is doing songs around town. I'm just some guy from Wales doing this song. <laughs> and I remember Nancy Cartwright came in. We were in Capitol Studios recording the vocal. You know, this which is in, in itself is insane in the Frank Sinatra room at Capitol. Because <laughs> so, I'm so what studios are good? Oh, Capitol's really good. Well, let's go there then. Because <laughs> budget wasn't even in pro- You know, my budget was so much smaller than everyone else's. Like no one really cared. So, well, we've got a Capital One. You know, Frank's good enough for Frank Sinatra. It's good enough for like me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh I remember going there and, and like Nancy contract turning up on the first day. I didn't know who she was, and 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 I'm like and and. Uh, I'm like, oh, so are you here to see Matt or something? Oh, no, I'm Bart Simpson. Oh, right. Wow. Who are you? I said, oh, I'm nobody. <laughs> That's what I can think of saying. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was just this whole really bizarre, th- that cue with the next bizarre several months of kind of like backing and forth into LA. If you wanted to change anything, you'd have to, um, you'd have to sort of go, um, have to go to a committee to change the lyric because everything's got to stay in character. And it was like, you know, it was just a, the weirdest kind of, yeah, so yeah, so ended up, you know, having the song on the Simpsons record, and so it was. Yeah, it was a really weird kind of period. Did that, did that assist you in your career? Was that was that a good bragging right? <laughs> well, musicians. I'm the Simpsons guy. <laughs> I don't think it directly. CVs are really weird things. It's like some some things just don't. However much they benefit you financially, don't benefit you in any way, shape, or form. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's really, really weird. Like you'll find, like, like normally people look at stuff I've done there, and they'll they'll look at like say something like the Mel C record, and you'll, and I'll, I think, you know, it's a bit eclectic for me to, to actually generate any work. Then you find that the album's done really well in like, you know, in in Portugal or some, you know, mm. and and it, and all of a sudden you start getting job offers from all these other territories you never knew about, mm. you know, or never, and it, and it's because on the strength of that record, you know, mm. or you get like crazy Spice Girls fans, or you know, they just like they just. They wanted you to make their record because, but then you get a lot of certain Manic Street preachers who, who, musicians just love, yeah. so they think well you know if they if you, if you can work with them you can work with me so, so CVs are just kind of a strange thing and that kind of goes in phases as well yeah. like you'll work with an artist that's really current but then ten years later they're not very current and everyone's forgotten who they are. And Was there a record that you worked on that sort of, you you noticed a significant jump in? Your work request, as it were, was there was yeah, there a one, it, one point in I time? I did. Um, there by the grace of God, it was a single for the Manchester Preachers, and it, it was my first chart chart mm. hit in the UK. And then, like the next week, like loads more work came in. Oh, 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 
How did it feel when it charted for you? Was that the first chart success? It was real. It was really great, you know, because yeah. it's like, because you know, I'd been working a long time, yeah, you know, and I'd been producing for quite a few years, you know, but it was like, it just. How did you hear it? Were you listening to Radio One? <laughs> yeah, I think it was chart, you know, Radio One chart show. I yeah. think so, because the band had already had lots of big hits, you know, yeah. and um, although I'd worked with them on, on the previous record, it was just as an engineer. So it was. It's not quite the same mm. when, when you're involved in production side of it, and um, yeah, it was like. And you you notice there was a noticeable increase in, in in the work offers the following week, mm. which is kind of bizarre because you're the same person, the same producer that you were mm. the week before. But basically, your advertising ban has just gone up, right? Yeah, in a way. And that's why CVs are important. I'm always convinced that my gravestone's going to say Greg Brackets Manix Haver <laughs> <laughs> because that's how I'm described mostly in every time it's ever mentioned in anything. But you've worked with so many artists. I mean, let's start reeling them off. Like, could, you, could you do that in order? Do you think you actually could? Uh, no. Have you ever I tried? Mean, depends how you, uh, as you look at it as well. It's like, because there's loads of artists I work with as a musician as well. Yeah. That you just like, I don't even include in, you know, you forget. You yeah. know, I, I did a record with Roger Daltrey as a musician. I played with Tom Jones, which my mother loved because that was yeah. all she ever wanted me to do. Yeah. And, you know, the album I played on for Tom sold seven million copies. You know, it's just like, you forget about that stuff. And like, the other day, my wife Jackie said, um, I see the bass of your rollers coming into town. And, uh, you know, and, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I did an album. I played an album for them. She goes, I've known you for 12 years. I never knew that. I'm like, yeah, I didn't even think to mention it. I kind of forgotten that I did. You know, it's it back in the in the sort of 80s. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a dark story. You know, I sort of, I went to um, the session because I'd been working for Eric Faulkner, who was the guitarist of the Rollers, on lots of, as, he, he was a producer. I was, I was, he was this kind of go-to session drummer because mm. I, I programmed and played and did a lot of records with him, which he never used to pay me for because the Rollers money was always tied up in, you know, some litigation with their manager or something. And uh, and um, I, I got called in and him and Les were there and his few, you know, and, and, and Pat, I think, was a later, they were all there in the studio. I'm like, oh, where's Derek? And he was like, Oh, he's he's visiting a young boy in Portugal. So I oh, didn't think anything of it until like twenty years later. Then some like story came up. You know, Derek and the Row was arrested for child pornography. Oh my god! <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I felt this kind of like dark wave oh. come over me. Was oh like, my was, god! Was I an enabler? Was it like you know? Was, it was like oh no! Oh yeah. God. So that was. <laughs> it was a you know inevitably with the rollers there's some dark side to the story yeah and it's like um, I yeah had no idea so so but but you forget about all these things that you've done and yeah. you know and, and lots of artists who kind of like they were just kind of you know maybe like a guitarist for a band that suddenly becomes like a really mm. well I mean you know Joel Little for classic example you know he was remember I did the first Goodnight Nurse single and Joel comes you know some lanky nineteen year old kid comes in. And you know we did just single, and now he's one of the world's premier producer songwriters. Yeah, you know it's like you 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 get you just sort of you forget about all these people you've been, so many your live interacts with so many different people and yeah. so many different artists who all splinter off and form other bands. And it's but funny. you've always got those core artists, you know, like the, you know, the manic street preachers generate a lot of work, and yeah. because you know, I, I spent. 11, 12 years with them in various guises. Mm. So, you know, they're a big part of my musical, you know, and I owe them a lot because without them, my career wouldn't be what it is because they've generated maybe... You, you, you drummed with them, didn't you, at some point? I in played time, percussion with them. I did yeah, two percussion. years on. Yeah. Well, I'd kind of given up touring after my big stint late 80s. It was mm. like, and I, I did a few, um, I did a few as tours. Um, there's a Scottish band, The Nightcrawlers, I did with John Reed. I toured with them for a bit and there's a few other small tours and I did um just to keep your hand in yeah because I was enjoying being in the studio you know yeah. touring wasn't really my thing you know it's like sleeping in a once you've done the sort of big tours you don't really want to go back to sleeping in the back of a van again no you know you sort of and um but I did like 2002 the Mannix did a part of the, the Carlin Homecoming series where bands would go back to their hometown play a small theatre mm. and do an acoustic set Wow, uh, and and bands bands were all over doing it all over the UK. And the managed did the St David's Hall in Cardiff, mm. and um, and 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 they were like, I'd been playing bits of percussion on records I'd done for them. They do you want to come and play some percussion on things like marimba and bongos and shakers, tambourines, and mm. you know, and it was um, so we had a string quartet and grand piano, and 
so I did this set with him in, in, at the, um, at the St. David's. And uh, at the end of the set, Nick turned around and said, this is really good. Do you want to come and do the tour next week? And they were doing like a sort of massive arena greatest hits tour. And I said, well, there's no time to rehearse. We'll send you a list of the songs. So, so they sent me like all the singles, like 40 singles. So I had to learn all these songs. And, and I had one run through, which is in, in the point in Dublin for production rehearsal and then then we play there the next day the night after we're in like Wembley or something no no, we're in Birmingham Birmingham, NEC in Birmingham and uh, you know then Wembley and uh, and Glasgow SEC and you know was that was that also when you did um, the uh, Glastonbury as well yeah so so I was was with them for about two years just we so we did they were doing the great yeah the greatest hits tour so we did the we did the big arena tour of the UK we did did a Japanese tour Mm. Um, and we did that's on my bucket list I'd love to do yeah that. it was great so I toured Japan with Corey and mm. go back there sort of like um, 14 years later it was really interesting to see how much it had changed and then um, yeah Glastonbury we did Pyramid Stage like one from top of the bill on the Sunday night like the, the sunset spot on mm. Sunday night which was like which was mind blowing really it was just like I was 42 and playing Glastonbury I thought I'd never actually you know you'd, you'd given up on that sort of thing if you love live music, tune into the Red Room Sessions radio show. of other sort of festivals and witness in Ireland and yes it was a really interesting couple of years and then I produced the Lifeblood album for them so it was it was a really quite intensive that, that they were pretty much my life for that couple mm. of years really mm. but um did you, did you work with Catatonia as well I did yeah I did yeah. some of International Velvet and, yeah um, I love that record did, yeah it was it was my that was a big record for me because got to be the sexiest voice Karis. ever recorded sexiest <laughs> woman ever you know yeah. no, it's just it, it was it was a really that was kind of interesting because I bought this this studio in in Cardiff in ninety six, the old Sound Space Studio where the managed recorded the Holy Bible album. Myself and a guy called Kerry Collier, we bought it when it it was going bankrupt. We bought it and we sort of we knew lots of musicians. We thought we can make this work, hmm. so we kind of like I think we bought it for like eight thousand pounds or something. Wow. And um, wow. Yeah, it was. It, we got it really cheap, mm. and we essentially most of that money went in paying off the back rent the landlord owed. So we, um, yeah, we got the studio, and, and we started getting lots of artists through that we knew. You know, Ke- Kerry knew that knew James and the Manics really well, and and um, you know, and he 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 was he was he was spent a lot of time on the road, so we knew lots of. Mm. You know. So we started getting all these bands through Super Free Animals, and in fact, Kerry married the drummer and keyboard player's sister. You know, it's it's Wales all very yeah. incestuous, you yeah. know. And uh, and um Actually how many fingers have you got? I oh, know you're a Yeah, no, I'm I well, I'm, I'm half cocking <laughs> as well, so it's but the so I remember Catatonia coming in and they'd have they'd had this massive bust like row with Warners who were their label at the time. The first album had done okay but it hadn't really broken through. And there was a song on the album that was basically just a, a slag off song of uh, you know, just song slagging off Warners, so they obviously told they had to take that off the record. <laughs> so they usually recorded some more songs, record some more songs. So we did some, we did a few B sides for a single, and we did this track Johnny Come Lately, which ended up on on on. Um, but it was just done as a demo, mm. so just me and the band. You know, I was engineering. You know, kind of the band were, were self producing, just kind of recorded the song, 
And so when they actually went to do the album, they found they just, it was one of those things where the demo always, it was always trumping whatever they were trying to do. Mm. So it's like, can we just use that? So, we, you know, so literally it's the, the, what's on the album is what we recorded on the Tascam MSR 16. Wow. You know, including the vocal, which I think was one or two takes. That's incredible. It's a beautiful vocal. It's just, yeah. she was just like, just so on it at the time. And just had just, you know, this amazing ability to kind of connect vocally. They'd all been in other Welsh bands who were really good. Yeah. It was like a well, almost like a super group. Super group. Yeah. yeah. They were all like really, really on it. Great, you know, great drumming, great playing. So what I do is chuck some mics up and then and just let them play. And it and it's like which is essentially production. Yeah. If you get a really good band who are really good, you know, who are playing great songs, it makes you sound good as a producer, but ultimately it's the artist, you know. Really. When you when you're in the studio and that's a, that album is a, probably a good example. Yeah. You're you're listening to the track. Do you have a feeling? Do you, do you, do you, how good is your hunch now about the song and its success? How it's going to translate to an audience? It's sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Mm. Like some of the albums I've made that I think are the best work I've ever done. Maybe no one no one's no one's ever heard of again. You Give know? me an example. Give me one of your favourite albums you've done that we can go and look for. There was a band from Riga in Latvia, half Russian, half Latvian, called Tribes of the City. Mm. And they, we did an album, um, and I just I just love it. I think it's, it's innovative, mm. it's, it's, you know, sonically and musically. You know, Ksenia, the singer, was just like, had this incredible presence, and like, you know, was really just, they were just all brilliant, you know. Crazy Russian guitarist, and you know, just everything about it was, even on paper, it was amazing. It's like they looked fantastic and they sounded amazing. And it was like, it, it, it was a bit shoegazy, but also had a bit of radio heady kind of twist. Mm. And but it was, you know, it was all in English, um, but kind of with that cool accent thing, you know, mm. that Eastern European. It was like, man, just this is going to be massive, and like, just couldn't get anybody interested in it at all. And I still put it on and go, I don't know how it didn't didn't happen. So it was yeah. never even released. Oh, it was released. Least, yeah, it's yeah. on Spotify. Yeah, and I would uh, I would uh, recommend that anybody listens to it because it is listeners go and find that. Yeah, so well, I can't. I'll, 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 I can't remember what the album was. Oh, um, oh man, what was it called? Can't remember the album title. But if you, the Tribes of the City, it's got yeah. like a little shed on the front. Yeah, and it's um, it's just a work of genius. It's just Tribes of the City, the shed album. Yeah, it's got a shed on the front. Of it. You're listening to the Red Room Sessions Radio Show. Sometimes, like I, I always have a thing, or not always, but I often have a thing. Like, do the producers call on a record? So, like, the artist will pick the songs they want. You know, you you pick the songs you want for the album. The artist pretty much has to say what you know ultimately what songs they want, or the artist and the label. But if there's a song that I feel is worth recording, 
I'll happily do that song for free because I think um, look, it's producer's call. Mm. It's not going to cost you any more money, but let's do the songs I think we should do it for the record. Mm. And sometimes that, if that works, you just feel you know, like one day by one day by Op Shop was producer's call on mm. Second Hand Planet. Wow. It was like the band hated it. Jason hated it. We had so many rows about oh, it. Oh, they must have loved playing it. Thank, they thanked you. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, the, it, there's actually a documentary that you could probably find on YouTube, the making of that album. And um, there's lots of arguments throughout that album. You know, how we've ended up such good friends, I don't know, because we really <laughs> butted heads for that whole record. And and, and there's, 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 a, there's a great shot of me saying, because they would kind of take the, they'd play it and take the piss out of it. And it'd be like, and I and this shot of me saying, if you if you make it sound, it's got to sound like Brian Adams, not like Ryan Adams, not Brian Adams. <laughs> and and uh, and and I said, if you make it sound like Ryan Adams, I'll come and kill every last one of you. <laughs> and then the next shot is me saying, it sounds like fucking Ryan Adams. <laughs> and, and, and then and, and in the contr- in, 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 in the vocal move with Jason, he's and, and he's going and oh, it's just I don't like the song. I said, look, it's the. It's the it's one of the best songs you've written. It's like the melody's fantastic. It's really good. you've got to trust me. It's a really great song. Cue the next shot of them getting the silver scroll for it, you know, and winning the the last music, the um the uh, museum music award for it. And it's like you kind of feel vindicated. Yeah. And I wish yeah. I could say that's always the case, yeah. but it's a. It was did, just you, a did you say I told you so? At any, yeah. Bit, I mean, I mean several years later, <laughs> me and Jason had a sort of drunken night out in in um, in Ponsonby, and and he was sat across the table. He said. You made some really good calls on that album. <laughs> like, it just, I was just—it was just lucky that the call that I made was not only a good call, but it was also—I was also filmed making that call. <laughs> and it was like, so there was no. You don't there, need to say no it's only so. There was just, no rewriting of history. It was like there on the film, you know. And it was, uh, it was, yeah. Is that how you came to be in New Zealand? Was that the first? Was that the no. album that pulled you over? I came to do. Um, a thing called Resonate, which is a bit like Going Global is now. Mm. It was like a music conference, and they'd and the British Council and NZ on Air and would bring uh, um, producers and video makers stuff over to do lectures. Mm. So I came. I, I was on tour with the Manics actually. I mean, we, we were playing in Brighton that night, and I got a call from Stephen Bird, my manager. Um, mate, 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 do you want to go to New Zealand? I'm like, yeah, I've never been there before, you know. But the only time I'll ever get a chance to go to New Zealand, and um, so it was, so I, so I came over about ten days before the, the conferences start, and I I had to pick two bands to record from I think from the end and on air um, sort of like decision decisions for that month, mm. and one was um, Ejector, which is the band with Nick Brinkman from Junica, who I mm. ended up doing a record with ten years later. The other one was a band called Forty Eight May. Mm. Um, from Hamilton, and we did a song called "Fight Back," which is the first song I ever recorded in New Zealand. I think it, it was it was a hit radio hit here. Mm. I'd end up doing their album, and you know, it's like um, so, so so. But I, I yeah. So we did those two songs, but when I was here, I, um, as I usually do, I thought, well, if, I, if I'm going somewhere new, I'll go and do a bit of networking. I'll go and speak to some labels, and and I went to see James Southgate at when he was CEO of Warner's, mm. who I kind of dealing with now because he's managed Devil Skin. And um, and uh, he said, "Do you want to produce this band, Feelers?" He said, "We've got to do a new album." And um, he gave me—I'd never heard of them before at that stage. He gave me communicate in the first album. I didn't really realize the history they had and everything. So mm. it's just, oh yeah, sounds good. I think we can do a good job. And I remember had a, had a terrible meeting with James Reed at Heathrow Airport, <laughs> and it was like sort of like I just—it just one of those. It's oh, just a real bad pitch meeting. I just thought they'd never go. And it eventually, you know, somehow they gave me the album, and it did really well here. I think we had like quite a few radio hits: "The Fear," "Stand Up," mm. "Larger Than Life." They were all on that record, and so you you do a successful record, and you kept getting asked. So more calls would come. Do you want to come and do this record? This record. And while I was over here doing something else, I, I remember hearing some op shop songs being played upstairs. At, they had a mastering room upstairs at York Street. Mm. I'm like I like this band, so I, I start badgering their management and like, mm. can you let me do the next record? And um, and so that's how that all came about, really. So it was just so it was 2003 was the first year I came here, mm. but on the last day of Second Hand Planet, I met my wife Jackie at Prego in Ponsonby, 
and we were married two years later. Fantastic. So that's how it ended. That's yeah. how that's long term how it ended. Yeah, I that's how they do it. They send these hooks out. You see and drag you in. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like yeah, it's beautiful Kiwi women. Yeah, yeah. You, you just know. want to uh, live in a country with four million people, basically, don't you? Yeah, basically. and it's just I mean, you know, what's not to love about being in New Zealand? It's just Nothing. such a fantastic place to live. Yeah. So I always, even after that first trip, I'm like, one day I wouldn't mind living here. What yeah. a beautiful place to yeah. How does that, how does that translate though for your your career? I mean, you. It's a long way away from London. Mm. It's a long way away from LA. But, you know, you have to bear in mind, like, I'm now, I'll be 57 next month. So So I'm not at a point where I'm trying to, like, you know, forge my career. I've had a pretty good run. Mm. You know, I cannot complain. It's been a really interesting, varied Mm. career. And it's like... You're not done, though, are you? No, no, not at all. I mean, I'm still, you know, I I make records all the time. Yeah. But, But I make records now with people who want to work with me, who... I, essentially, I use the 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 sort of like, uh, do I want to be in a room with this person for the next month? Do we get on? Do we? F- am I a good fit for them musically? If the answer uh, those is yes, then it's like okay. So how well? What? How much money have we got? And then you figure it out. You know. Yeah. So it's you know it's it, that the overriding reasons for doing it are: do I want to do it? Do they want me to do it? Mm. I, I know, and and then then you go from there. And you, Does it? Is it easier from that position? I mean, do you find that? There's less resistance in a way that that it still come it comes to you easier when you're not trying as hard. It, it does. I, I think you know because it's you know I get lots of offers of stuff that I don't do, mm. and um, you know and I and I'm also weary about because when I first moved to New Zealand I'd be back in the Europe for like maybe seven eight weeks at a time. I just don't want to be away from home that much anymore. Mm. You know I I want to be here doing things. I, I, I want to do some things aside from music because mm. really in the, in the in the five years leading up to when I moved over here, I'd be working eight, nine, ten months a year and solidly, you know, like mm. Monday, to Monday, you know, Monday to Sunday every yeah. week. And, you know, you get to a point where you just, it's, you just start burning out. You just cannot do that much work. Mm. And, um, you know, there was one year I recorded over 240 songs in a year. Wow. And it's like... <laughs> You, you can't sustain that level without your health suffering, without your sort of, you know. And this like, and then you start making records that you don't really want to make. And it's mm. like, no, I, I, now I just want to, you know, you know, now I'm getting to work with some really interesting artists here. You know, the Chills record was great fun to do. I'm really enjoying doing the Devilskin stuff. You know, I've had some really, made some really, in the Echo Park records have been really good fun to do. Mm. So All it's, really lovely people too. Yeah, and they're great people to be with and we have fun making them. And um, you know, I go back to Europe. I still I have some really good clients in 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 the UK and Eastern Europe, and, and I go back and make records with them. Mm. There's some really successful artists, you know, who don't even sing in the English language, who make sell lots of records, and you know, and they play arenas, you know, mm. and I go and make their records, and or they or sometimes they come over here, which is always quite nice. Yeah. And uh, so it's um, apparently you know, apparently I'm Roundhead's best client, <laughs> which is bizarre, because I'm meant to be kind of retiring. Yeah. But I also I also wanted to, to do some things like you know the the um the the song hubs events and the music producer series where I where I where I met you first yeah. time and it's like and that that's what I was going to get to next because that's really your way of giving back, isn't it? I mean, I mean yeah. that's so much that such a rewarding uh, week. Could you just explain to to the listeners what that is? Yeah, I mean essentially, I had two ideas of things. Oh, but part part of moving here was like right, I'm accepting the fact that my that there won't be so much work here, which is fine because I don't want to do, I want to just do selective projects and don't want to do everything. But I, the, the last thing I want to do is come here and say, okay, where's all the records to make? You know, I, I, I didn't want it to negatively impact on the industry here by just taking a lot of work away from New Zealand producers and engineers. So then, so, okay, let's extend that on and what, how, how can I help the industry here rather than just take from the industry here? So what... The, my first idea was actually the producer series, thinking, well, I producers contacting producers for me is easy because we're you know we're usually part of the same Facebook group. A lot of them are my friends. It's just a phone call. So so I'll start off with my friends. I'll phone them up and say, do you want to come to New Zealand and come and spread your knowledge here and you know and um, and and get some spend some time in New Zealand. You know, I pay them to do it, and, and so it's like. Um, but then the song hub thing kind of like. I'd had a meeting with my friend Amy Wodge, who she co-wrote Thinking Out Loud for Ed Sheeran, and I produced Amy's first album. We've known each other for 15 years or whatever. And I'm like, I've had, you know, it'd be nice to bring some songwriters over. So she, you know, her involvement helped me sort of like 
you know contact other songwriters and um and that's and then APRA came on board and you know the song hubs program where we've done three years of it now mm. where we bring song international songwriters over hire roundhead the whole building for a week have five studios going four people in each studio all writing songs you know mm. and it's um so that's you know that's kind of like now that's up and running it's kind of running itself really yeah. but the producer series it's slightly different the fact that I pretty much do all the organising and the, you mm. know, I don't have the, the, although Recording Music New Zealand put a lot of the funding in, mm. you know, I pretty much get on the phones myself. So, so it's, so, so, so it's the idea is you bring, you know, a couple of international producers and engineers over, you put them in a room with like eight to 10 sort of like uh, New Zealand, uh, basically trying to upskill people. So, you know, producers and engineers like yourself can go in and just like, oh, what I'm doing is I'm kind of doing the same things. Mm. A lot of it's confidence building and, and positive reinforcement, but also you know you get to pick up some good new tricks, and it's kind of like um, it's a really good way to learn. You can sit and watch a YouTube video all you like, but if you can interact with the person, you're yeah. going to learn a lot more. Yeah, so it's, it's great really, networking as well. Yeah, and the networking's fantastic, and it's yeah. been really beneficial with Song Hubs and with producer series. But um, yeah, so the producer series we're on to the third one now, which is this going to be this year. In October. Do we know who's coming this time? I know who's coming, but I can't tell you, can't you now. Can't tell me yet. Oh, because it's like we've really upped the game this year. It's like awesome. Also, uh, oh, what you're saying is the other ones were rubbish. <laughs> the moment I the moment I said that, the moment I said that, that I thought, yeah, that's probably the wrong thing to say. Yeah. No, it's as far as like perception is concerned, it's like. Um, if you look at that, you know, if you look at, without giving too much away, if you look at, like, the guys who were doing that mix from the masters, say, they would seem to be the upper echelons of, you know, of, of sort of... You're weird. bringing Steve Albini. And I cannot, I can't say... Chris, Lord I'll, Alge. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you off, off the record. <laughs> but, um, but, no, I mean... Where we've, do I sign? We, we've had an amazing... Take my money. Know, <laughs> <laughs> we've had, you know, we had Dave, Dave Ringer and Guy... Uh, that Guy was Massey, incredible. Who, came, who were just brilliant. You know, um... Dave Wrench was fantastic. Who you know, I've known Dave for quite a few years because he, you know, he's been around the world scene. But now he's you know, mixing Dave Burn records, and you know, he's like an incredible mix engineer. And Robert Stonegoda, who's a really old friend, who just um, just a great producer, you know. So it's like, and he's just spent three months doing the Bring Me the Horizon record in LA. So it's like, you know, you're bringing really good people. So, and I, you know, I really wanted to, you know, just keep, you know, bringing those, you know, just great producers over to, because I don't want it to be a lost art. I don't want people to think of production as just opening a laptop and recording with a couple of mics. I think you know you don't want to lose that kind of like the art of, you know, of recording an ensemble, you know, a drum kit and, and you know, yeah. Can I actually talk into that a little bit because things have changed. Certainly, artist perception has changed. What is the value, the real value, of a recording studio, and working with a production team? What you know, because you can, you know, you can open up a laptop anywhere in any room, yeah. and you can have an A to D converter and some mics. Yeah, but I guess you know, an analogy would be, you know, if you look at photography, hmm. a great photographer is a great photographer. That doesn't that doesn't negate you having a re really quite interesting Instagram account. <laughs> you know, it's it's like you know yeah. you, you can look at someone's you can look at someone's Instagram account and go, that's really good. I really like that. But, but it's then, not... then you look at the work of a, like a really yeah. experienced photographer <laughs> who knows light, who knows shutter speeds, who knows things, and it's like that's really spectacular. Yeah, you know. So it's like, but that, that doesn't lessen the ability of just like someone with a, with a cat with a phone taking cool photographs and, and composing really good shots. So you know there 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 is there is a t there is there's a gap there. So you can still, you know, take those. You want to take those people who've got great Instagram accounts and make them into great photographers. The, it's the same with the producer series. You're taking guys who really know what they're doing, who are already good at what they do, and trying to take them to another level. That's the key. It's, it's upskilling. It's all about that. And um, but I think as far as you know, a lot of art is self-produced nowadays. You know, and it's always been the case in New Zealand. A lot of art is self-produced anyway, just because budget. You know, your budget and yeah, and you know, the distance from everywhere else, and all the usual reasons people give. But you know, this it's kind of interesting when I go in and make a record with someone who's who is self-produced or whatever. It's like you can see they suddenly see the benefits of having someone else there who's got the experience, who who they can bounce ideas off. You don't always have to have that person there, but a lot of it is just a lot of records are really, really badly organized. Mm. And if you just go in and just like get, you know, 
if, if all you do is go in and, and just organize a session for them and get them you know, on the right path and make sure everything's done properly, sometimes that's all you need to do as a producer. It's almost like, you know, you, production should almost be like this kind of zen thing where if you could take it to its ultimate extreme, you don't even have to go to the studio. <laughs> you, just, you just get all the right people doing all the right things and then let them, go, let them do it. And it's almost the more hands-off you can be, you know, the purer you're going to get to the original artist's vision. Mm. But it's never that easy, <laughs> you know. You always have to be hands-on and all those things need to do. But some people don't want any, any help production-wise, and some people do. And some people need it, some people don't need it. Yeah. So really, it's you know, there, there's always going to be a place for... And the studio, is there a... Is that literally just a place to record? Or you know, how, how important sonically are... Does it matter? I mean, because you mean that Catatonia record was on a Tascam. I bet you weren't worried particularly about mics when you were doing a demo. It was it was a Tascam, which is still a nice old analog desk. Mm. But it was you know it was a really great drum room that wasn't built as a drum room. It was just in in the eaves of a, of a building that just happened to sound really good, and it was um, and we had some decent mics and some pretty you know. A lot of those old compressors are now classics that were just you know they just they were in the rack, you know, and it was like so what you know there's. Some LA fours and but it is about but you are right it is, it is about the performance it is about it but you know it's like if you go, I find if you go to a, you know a really there's there's something about a place that you to go you go to record mm. that should inspire the people that are, are there mm. you know if you take a band some if you take a band to say Rockfield Studios in Wales yeah they're like oh my God Freddie Mercury wrote Bohemian Rhapsody here and it was like you know the first two Oasis records were done here it's like the first two Coldplay records was done here, like Fairwater Kings by Rush was done here. You know, you look at the massive history, all the you know, loads of Motorhead records were done, the Zeppelin, you know, it's like all these amazing artists and you feel the rock and roll coming I'll stop hitting the mic. You see all the rock and roll coming out of the walls and it's like and they get inspired by that. Yeah. You know, if, if, it's like if you go to a, if you if you're playing a gig at a venue, you know, if you're playing a gig at you know whatever you're, you know, like if you play, you know, play Glastonbury, say, yeah, yeah, you just think of the history that goes before mm. you, and when you're recording in a, in a space, you really do you know imbue that history of what was there before, and it's like you know it's amazing to see artists how they react to that that environment, yeah, and it's um you know they look at a picture and it's like they're they're heroes sitting there and now they're sitting there and they're doing the same thing. So it's like I think there's a lot to be said for that that side of it, and a lot of those studios are now affordable. You know, it's like mm. they used to, they're now like you know, something like Rockfield. It's actually quite affordable. There's no Des now making you making you cocktails. There's no cocktails. <laughs> there's no assistance. You know, you just kind of you, you hear some mics go and go make your. Do you want a coffee? Go and make one. Yeah. Yeah. So, this roundheads are such quite such an anomaly. You know. It's, yeah. You know, there's 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 a, there's a full time house engineer. Is. But you know that's that's due to Neil's benevolence. You know, yeah. it's like you need people like that who, uh, who you know, who put back into the industry, who make you know, that. You know, Roundhead is a world class facility. You mm. know, and every producer I bring here realizes that. But you don't need you don't necessarily need that. Mm. You certainly don't need it to sort of track vocals and guitars, mm. even though you have got some great mics and everything there. But I really do love starting records there because it's a really great environment to start a record and get a lot of really good. You know. Like I'll often go there and track the first five six days of a record there, mm. because you know because everything the, everything works really well, everything sounds good, the rooms sound good, the, the you know, so you know so you you're taking out of the equation lots of the problematic areas, but if you're going to just put record some guitar over dubs and a mic, you kind of you know you don't really want to be burning through a big chunk of your budget doing that. Mm. So I think that's changed the way a lot of us producers work. But also you know when I first came to New Zealand. You know, we were looking at, you know, when we did Plague and Rap for the Feelers, we were sort of, um, we had 30, 32 days tracking. We had like, you know, I remember at the time thinking, we're going to be tough to do it on this budget. I think our budget was like $120,000. Wow. And this was in, this was like 15 years ago. Wow. So those, um, and, and, and I, I, I was just, I was in the process of doing records in the UK where we had like, you know, 250,000 pound budgets. You know, it's like, you got to make, you know, for for a feeder's record, I would now have to make five or six albums. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, that's how you know. So you've got to be savvy of the way you use technology. So I think you can you can use studios for certain reasons, but you don't have to be. You haven't got to be booking thirty days at Roundhead to make an album. Mm. You know, it'd be and nice, you, and you can't. Yeah, it'd be nice, but you can't. 
so you just can't really can't justify it you know yeah. so you've got to find you know work around so you're booking for five days instead and then mm. you go in like for the, not this echo park right but the previous echo park record we did all our drum track in there then we went off to, took a nick portman's mobile rig over to onimana hired a batch and st- spent 10 days out there recording and it Wonderful. was beautiful yeah. it was just as creative an environment mm. you know but you, you got to know the gear you're taking there is good you know yeah. good mic pre's good mics but it's um so it's just you know it just swings around about but you can you can do great stuff you know it's it's it you can do great stuff with minimal setups and you can be really creative but for a lot of the work that I do which is tends to be you know big ensembles of bands and mm. big drum kits and you kind of need there's a level you need to kind of to, mm. to at least start your records at really mm. the point you're at in your career now i mean you've you've toured the world many times you've worked with what is perceived as and rightly so, the top acts, British acts, American internationals, you've you've been there, you've seen it. Um, you've probably seen patterns of behaviour uh, within artists which help them become successful or at least aid, if there's no guarantees. Huh? If uh, I'm going to ask you with that context, right? What advice would you give to an artist setting out now whose aspirations are? You know, big. Hmm. Just gotta persevere. You just kind of can't give up. I think, you know, when I started as a musician, society was very different. You know, we had no internet, we had no social media, we had no mobile phones. You know, you basically, you just kind of grafted away. But you also didn't perceive how other people were doing. So you didn't, you weren't constantly reminded about, you know, look at my life, look how successful I am as an artist. And, and and you know and but when you delve into actually where they are career wise, you know you can you look at someone's like social media accounts, think oh they're doing incredibly well, and you meet them and you talk about it. It's like oh you're just struggling like everyone else. Hmm. You just put it you you're create another a really, human create, you, you create a really good impression about how you know which is part of the game nowadays. Hmm. But you know for me it was just like you just start you just kind of graft away and you sort of like you get you know you're gonna get massive disappointments. I think for young artists starting now. It's such an instant society that it's like if you don't get success in your first record or your first year, it's like, you know, oh, everyone hates me. You know, it's like I'm never going to have a career. It's like, you know, then you look at like, you know, I mean, the, the Mastery Preachers were on their fourth album before they really gained success. Mm. You know, four albums in. You know, that's Keeping cool. the faith. Yeah, just keep. And, and now they're on their, what, 15th album? Wow. You know, and they still have, still sustain a career. Mm. You know, it's like you just got to, you got to just keep working and, and I think not giving up. You know, like I say, I was 27 before I really earned a decent living at music. And even after then, there were tough years, you know, mm. tough times. Mm. You know, you just crippling debt and, you know, you just kind of like, <laughs> now I'm going to keep persevering. And mm. then and then you get another break. And then, you know, and then and then, and then you just find yourself. And also don't, I think, it's, it's, certainly as a producer, you can't be too proud about about. There's always that thing, you know, especially coming from the British music industry where you kind of you seem to be working in the upper echelons of music. You know, you shouldn't dismiss, you know, an artist from New Zealand or an artist from the Czech Republic or an artist from Greece or Switzerland. You know, because you go there, like there's, you know, there's a band I work with in the Czech Republic, Chinaski. I go and see them play and they play to 18,000 people. They play arenas. They sing in the Czech language. No one outside the Czech Republic really knows who they are. Mm. So, that that's a, that's a successful career. Mm. They're successful artists, and um, you know, but because they don't sing in English, they may be seen as kind of you know some sort of lesser yeah. music form. And I think you've got a, the idea of micro careers and working in different territories. You know, there. When I first came to New Zealand, I was just amazed by the amount of brilliant musicians, brilliant artists, Absolutely. great songs being written. You know, you know, amazing technicians. Pretty much every engineer I've used on a record in the last fifteen years has been from New Zealand. Wow, and I just worked at York Street, you know. It was like that was an amazing group of breeding ground for incredible sad, engineers. Sad day that was announced that was closing. Yeah, and, and it was. Now that says a lot for the tra- you know that the Jeremy the training that Jeremy and Pike gave them. It mm. was like they're really great, really well trained engineers. To the point where we bring engineers over from New Zealand to work in the UK as assistants because we couldn't find the the assistants there who had the same work ethic. Mm. So you know, you, so it's I think it's. You just got to be, you know, accept the work from wherever it comes from, you know. 
So you, and you get to do cool stuff. You know, you get to go to Black Rock in Santorini and make records with Greek artists singing in, singing in Greek. <laughs> and then you go out and you realize that they're just massive superstars in their own country, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's like, and, and what's, what's the downside? No. You know, there isn't the downside, I, you know? I, I asked the same question to Jimmy Devlin and his answer was, don't be a dick. <laughs> it's, 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 that's a really great, I've actually used that one myself. Because ultimately, you know, if you're a dick, any early on in your career, that career is not going to last very long, because like for me now, so one of the reasons I'm able to do things like song hubs and the producer series is because I don't, I've not really, I've always been really careful about asking favors of people, mm. because they're my friends and I, I don't want to, you know, feel that they're my friends because I'm asking for something. But then, as my wife Jackie, you know, who spent a long time, long of her life in PR, you know, you've got to. A phone book full of contacts. It's like ridiculously a ridiculous amount of contacts. You know everybody. Why don't you just just you know make some phone calls, and, and make some stuff happen? And I'm like, okay, I'll just phone if yeah, no problem. You know, mm. and you just are because I wasn't addicted then. Twenty years ago, they're quite happy to help me now. And mm. I think Jimmy's advice is like it really. It sounds like the most mundane thing to say. Um, it's like saying to a vocalist, you know, oh, how should I deliver this? I'm just like, just go in and sing the song. It's that easy. Don't think about it. Just sing it. And it's like, if you're not addicted to people, you will actually be, you know, you'll be able to sustain a good career because, you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll meet thousands of people over the course of that career. Mm. And, um, and, the, and most of them are really quite happy to help, help out. Mm. And who doesn't want to come to New Zealand? You know, it's one of the easiest calls you've got to make. <laughs> Do you want to come to New Zealand? <laughs> yes. It's, you know, it's like, well, oh, if I can't come now, can I come another time? You know? Yeah. There's, there's, there's definitely a romance about it. Is it we, um, we run a label and... Uh, we we talked to a lot of student stations when we're you know in across the west coast of America and right. I went and visited them and it was it was really interesting going in there I said hi I'm from a label from from New Zealand New Zealand come in you know yeah 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 everyone has got a fantasy about it which is useful oh that's right. and it's like and the, and the Welsh and the and the Kiwis have a, have a great connection you know uh, difference or, or, with singing ability at the rugby games though it has to be said yeah on a base level sheep and rugby yeah but, true but um but yeah I mean. <laughs> Drinking. Part, I was I was I went to the All Blacks Wales game in in Cardiff in November. Or was it start? Yeah, it was in November, and you just realise how quiet Eden Park is. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, yeah. It's like really, are you guys at a funeral or what? You know, it's like crazy. I know you're wearing black, but you can still sing. When Come they on. when they close the roof at the, at the at the well, the Principality Stadium, whatever it's called now, you know that if you want to hear singing, yeah. that's the place to be. It's just um, you know, the hair stand up in the back of your neck. It's yeah. like. You know, and 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 being there with the roof closed, where where you know the Welsh and the Kiwi national anthem are being sung, you know, it's actually quite a moving experience. Yeah, because be you know amazing. they're my, they're my two home, you know, my, my two homes. Yeah, and it's like um, it was really quite special, you know. Although I like Wales to a point, <laughs> and we have it wasn't going to happen, and we have one in my lifetime in you know, nineteen fifty seven, and it was like, was it fifty three? It was a long time ago. That we we've. The Welsh have beaten New Zealand so few times. The last time being 1973, when Clonetley beat New Zealand. Um, uh, was it Clonetley nine zero? Now with three, yeah, nine three. It, it, there's songs written about it. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's also a whiskey named after it. Pendarian whiskey to a whiskey called the Tri. I didn't or even know it was a Welsh whiskey. Yeah, and, you it's, go. and, and, you go, and it's it, it, and, and it's to celebrate the time that <laughs> a Welsh team beat the, beat, the New, beat the All Blacks. That's how you know. It'll, I'm, I'm just hoping in my lifetime it'll happen. It'll, yeah, it will. You know, it will. Keep I really hope so. We've been close a few times, but you know, Greg. Um, Thank you so much yeah, for coming. It's my pleasure. In. It was been it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. I reckon we could probably do this like five times and still not cover yeah, everything. There's plenty but, of stories. You yeah. get a lot of stories after 30, 40 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's been um, my pleasure. And, and good luck with the program. It's um Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, sounds great. Thanks very much. Cheers. If you love live music, tune into the Red Room Sessions radio show. 